Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is June the 5th, 2014, and this is episode 1361 of the Survival Podcast. Man, do I have a good one for you today. I've got Michael Bolden hanging on the line. Who's he? He's the founder and the most active member, I would say, of the Tenth Amendment Center, and he's here to talk about the nullification process today and how the nullification process can be used in the reclamation of liberty. And if you're like me, you probably think you know what nullification is, but you might find out today that what you think you know, while true, isn't the only way to handle nullification. And it might not even be the most historically successful way to handle nullification. That nullification is going on all around us right now in varying ways, and it's actually being very effective, and all we need is maybe a bigger push to start heading back to the type of republic that we're supposed to be. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is JM Bullion. JM Bullion is an incredible sponsor. Um, I have watched them go from good to great, and they, they right now are standing at the edge of heading into incredible. Um, silver and gold, you're looking for quick shipment. I mean, you're buying expensive stuff. You expect it to come. There's prices move around and things like that. You want delivery as soon as possible. They've always been good. Um, the last couple times I've ordered from them or heard from customers or from the stuff showing up, showing up so fast, you're like, what is that? Because it's sent in a nondescript package. Um, talked to Michael a couple days ago. And they're working now to try to get to the point where order is received uh, before 3 o'clock, I think is what he said. Then it will be shipped same day. And they're getting very, very close to that. And that's awesome. So, I mean, great pricing. I have personal contact with the president of the company. They do a wonderful job. And I want to tell you about a product they have today. A little bit longer than I usually do. They have a product. I just ordered 12 of these. And they also make this in a 10-ounce bar, which does cost less per ounce. I got 12 of these because, well, I wanted to get over the $300 number so that I could get my discount. As an MSB supporter, they provide a discount, and I don't like odd numbers, so 11 doesn't work for me. I'm serious about that. I know guys think I'm, I'm joking once in a while when I say that. I don't like odd numbers. Anyway, um, so this silver, you'd call it shipwreck silver. It's from the Garisopa, which is a ship. Let me tell you about the uh, the ship and, and the story here. The 300-foot SS Garispopa was launched in 1919 by the British India Steam Navigation Company of London, a company that got its start transporting mail between Calcutta and Rangoon. As World War II unfolded, the United Kingdom enlisted the ship to help out with war efforts. Towards the beginning of the war, December 1940, the ship was loaded with full supplies, including pig iron tea and over 7 million ounces of silver in the form of ingots. Today, the value of the cargo has been estimated at 150, 150 million pounds and is believed to be one of the richest of any sunken vessel. The final voyage. On its trip from Calcutta to Britain, where it was to deliver a rich load of Royal Mint and rich load to the Royal Mint of London, um, the ship began to run low on fuel. It was forced to set a new course on the most direct route to port. As the ship headed toward the Isles, it was spotted by German aircraft, which then relayed the position to a U-boat, 
which was in the area. The Garisoba was hit with a torpedo and later sunk on February 17, 1941, approximately 300 miles off the coast of Galway. The ship and its rich cargo sat on the bottom of the Atlantic for nearly seven decades until it was recovered. In 2010, the British government sought out the help of Florida-based Odyssey Marine Exploration to help locate the ship and try to recover 110-plus tons of precious silver. They succeeded and end up recovering nearly all of the sunken silver. After the success of their recovery, the company decided to commemorate the ship and its rich history by producing a number of silver bars, rounds, and coins minted with actual silver from the recovery. If you go to the page, and I'll have an extra link for them today in the show notes, you can see some video of the actual recovery. But what they've done is they've taken this silver and they've minted it into some really beautiful bars and rounds. And you can actually buy these. I think if you're buying a bunch, they're not that expensive. But there's a premium on them. Silver's like $19. bucks. you are buying one to $19, they are $27.71 if you're playing by a credit card. So there is a premium there. But what a piece of history. Um, I'm getting some of these. And I've been talking to you guys about silver for kids. And, um, you know, I have basically a grandson in my life now because of my son's, you know, uh, girlfriend having a child and the way that their relationship is progressing. And I'm going to get a cool little wooden chest to start putting away several times a year silver for this kiddo. And one of these is going to be the first thing to go in there. And I'll have to figure out which, who else to give some to because uh, then I'll have 11 and I don't like odd numbers. Yeah, I'm serious about that. But I just thought I'd share a little bit of extra about our sponsor of the day with you today um, on the Shipwreck Silver. Again, I'll have a link to the in the show notes to where you can go right to that page because as cool as it is, JM, you guys over there, Michael, you don't make that thing easy to find. I happen to see it scrolling across the top of your site, but it's buried pretty deep. You need to feature that thing a little better because... I think a lot of people would be interested in it. Now, next up, I got another sponsor for you today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Hey, Berkey water filter systems are silver. Well, they're they're actually stainless steel, but they're silver shiny colored. And you know what? They're the best way to take care of your water filtering needs. They are extremely economical over the long haul. They are awesome, and there is no better place to get your Berkey than from Jeff because he's a customer service maniac. And hey, do you know what? Jeff is the Berkey guy. Why the heck would you buy your Berkey from anybody but the Berkey guy? Check out Jeff's website at directive21.com. Remember, he does have discount programs for members of the MSB as well. So make sure for Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, and JM Bullion, you go to the benefits section before you order. Uh, with JM, they offer two discounts, one at a $300 spend and one at a 1000 Make sure you're using the right code for the right spend because the code for the bigger spend won't work on the smaller one. And the smaller one might work for the bigger one, but... You won't get as big a discount, which kind of sucks. Right, so there you go. On the Member Support Brigade, please consider joining. If you do that, you help support the show. 18.3 cents an episode, and uh, I'd really appreciate it if you join. How about that for a short MSB today? Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you, prior service or active duty. Do require, uh, do require, do qualify for a discount if you email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with service discount in the subject line. I will respond to you with the discount you need to do that before, not after you join. Let's go to the year that was the episode. There's two here. I'm reading one. You want to read the other one? Go to tspwiki.com and check out the history segment for the year 1361. There'll be a link in today's show notes. The one I have for you from Alex Shrug is The Black Prince and the Fair Maid Joan. Every day, if you're a new listener, you need to know this. We go into the year that is the episode for a little history lesson to get some context on current times because things aren't as different as we think they were all the way back in the 1300s. 
Edward, the Black Prince of England, has married the Countess of Kent, the fair maid Joan. As happy as marriages can be, the royal level nothing happens by chance. The marriage is as much a political move as a partnership. And this one goes wrong almost immediately, though they don't know it yet. In the same year, Henry of Grossmont, the Duke of Lancaster, dies, passing his estate by marriage to the Black Prince's younger brother, John of Gaunt. Combined with his current holdings, that will make John of Gaunt richer than the rest of the royal family. The Black Prince of the Fair Maid Joan will have a child, Richard II, and the heir to the throne after the Black Prince dies. And this will cause a fight for the throne in 1399, between the son of John the Gaunt, Henry IV, and Richard II. Here's what Alex says. It seems amazing that nobility, as calculating as it could be, were not very self-reflective. When this imbalance of wealth of John of Gaunt was created, they didn't think ahead about the consequences might be for their children. John himself was not the problem. Also remember that last year, Joan's cousin Isabella of Kent had been fishing for a marriage amongst the brigands and caught him. This is yet another example of a total lack of reflection on whom they were marrying, except in terms of power and lineage. Isabella's husband would be considered a mobster in the modern day. That's a mighty nice castle you've got there. It'd be a shame if a wandering band of brigands were to come along. Uh, know what I mean? Right? So, yeah, she married the mob. And here's the thing, right? They say, you know, Alex says, well, this guy was like part of the mob. Well, the royals were mobsters. This whole thing was organized mobsterism. Just kind of like our modern government, if you think about it. Who you were born to, it's all in a family, right? And I pass down as the dawn. The king is the dawn. I go down to my son. He will take over the family when I leave. That's all this was. This was a organized criminal activity. That's what the royal rule and the feudal system was. And they had knights to protect the people. You had to pay the nobles your tribute. I mean, this is the mafia. This is why we threw the English out when we revolted in this country and said no more. And this is why. You know, I get on, I get on the average American that watches crap like non-reality TV, like the Kardashians and stuff. But do you know what drives me more crazy? Look at Princess Kate. She's so beautiful. They're getting married. Oh, look at her cousin's butt. Oh, she's going to have a child. This royal watching. The, the, the obsession in this country by some people with what the royal family of England is doing. These are the, this is the, the, the long-term lineage of the mobsters you're hearing about right here that we threw out. The American people should not give a damn about anybody's royalty unless there's some sort of international commerce by an actual monarchy where that royalty is still in charge of the country. And then we should care very little because we shouldn't be doing a whole lot of that. There is, it is mind-numbing to me that a single American gives a damn about Princess Kate or Prince Harry or what have you. We're not English, folks. We're not English. We threw them out. And we should not have any level of worship for the concept of rule based on family lineage at all in modern day. But yet we do. We're obsessed with it because Disney made cartoons and sold people on the, on the, the prince saving the princess and every little girl wants to grow up to be a princess. I don't know. Maybe we should focus on teaching our, our young men and women instead of growing up to be princes and princesses. And it's much worse on the female side with growing up to be good citizens of a republic 
and understand what the republic was founded on. Personally, I think there's too much power in government if we did follow the Constitution. There should be less. But I'd take at least going back to what is constitutional. And that's what we're going to talk about today with our special guest, Mr. Michael Bolden, the founder of the Tenth Amendment Center. Hey, Michael, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me on. So you are the founder and executive director of the Tenth Amendment Center. And the first question I have for you is, is kind of the same I have for every guest. How did that happen? Where, where, did your, where did you come from in life to end up there? Because seldom do like 12-year-old kids, when they write a, an essay about what they want to be when they grow up, say, I want to be an advocate for the Tenth Amendment. I wish more of them did it, but generally people take kind of, kind of a, a, a crooked path to end up in a, in a role like that. So could you kind of talk about what led you there? Well, first of all, when I was 12, I wanted to be a train driver, and it never happened. Excellent. So, I, you know, I applied to work at Amtrak, and maybe that was my the way I learned that, that government wasn't there to help you. But, but over the years, actually, I came from the far left politically, and I know a lot of people who believe in limiting government or liberty. Uh, some of them come from the left, but it seems at least these days more come from the right, so maybe I'm kind of an odd duck in that. I was a, uh, an anti-war activist, uh, which I know a lot of libertarians are as well, but I also took the viewpoint that, hey, uh, you know, if they're not going to be um, uh, paying for this war, maybe they can pay for some social programs. And I was very, a very active with a, a number of very Marxist groups. But I, I came to learn over a number of years that basically everything government promised, they'd either fail, screw up, or lie about. And it, I just, I mean... I had this transition over a number of years, uh, came across a, a, a great uh, radio host and writer named Harry Brown a number of years ago and just lear uh -huh. learned and learned and learned. And eventually, someday, I found out about this whole Tenth Amendment thing. And I'm like, wow, you know, if, if these guys are doing everything wrong or lying about it or doing things they shouldn't be doing, this is kind of a natural line in the sand. You're not supposed to be doing all this stuff. So I had the idea of starting a blog, which I registered just about eight years ago in uh, June of uh, 2006, with the idea of I'm going to start talking about this. My goal is to reach a couple of people uh, and hopefully educate a few people on it. And it's gone a little bit better than that. I'm sure it was uh, kind of similar when you started, Jack, the idea of just get the word out, do things. And uh, if it takes off, the market is telling you you're doing something right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, our genesis was actually had a, uh, a client in uh, one of my companies that we did web development, and he wanted a podcast. So I, I went out and bid the job, and we got the job. And uh, then the, the guy that actually did all the developmental work for us was like, I can do all of the work, but I don't know how to do this podcast integration thing. And I had been thinking about doing something. I'm like, well, I'll figure that out. Cool. Um, and I started actually the show in my car. Uh, which is probably news to some of the newer listeners of the show as well. I actually did the show for two years in my car. And uh, it, it's funny that when you start actually speaking the truth and you're uncensored and people can't shut you down, because the gatekeepers are pretty much dead in this day and age mm -hmm. with the Internet, that sooner or later you start to actually get people to listen, and then they tell people who tell people. And all of a sudden, what was one person is many 
And I think that we're, you know, we're fortunate and unfortunate in today's day and age because the unfortunate part is how oppressive government has become. But there's also never been a better time to fight back. Well, it's a great time for a patriot to be alive. And I think Patrick Henry and many others, Tom Paine, would agree, you know, at the time of, of, of maximum danger, that's the time when we're called to action. And I know... My life would be much more fun if I could just take road trips and watch fun TV shows and, and go to the game and hang out with family and friends. And I try to do that, and I try to have a healthy balance in my life, not get dragged too far into the mud. But certainly I would not feel fulfilled. I don't want to look back on the end of my life and say, you know what, I complained, I thought things bad. But what did I do? So I really believe that I need to take action today and every single day to try to make the world a little bit better place. So the way that you're proposing that we fight back, at least in part, is through a process called nullification. Uh, for everybody out there that's heard good and bad views of it, can you just clear the waters and just explain the basics of what nullification is? The very basic concept behind nullification, and it can be used on various levels, whether state, individual, local, is a set of actions which renders a particular law null and void or just unenforceable in your area. So if you're talking about state nullification, then you're talking about an action on a state level or a set of actions which turns a federal act to uh, virtual nothingness. So they can't enforce it, whether it means you just don't participate in it or a lot of people uh, stop just following the so-called law, whatever it may be, or if the state passes a law saying this is illegal in our state for the federal government to do this, then the end result is what is most important. So it can be a whole puzzle of various actions. It can be, for example, hemp farmers in Colorado deciding to plant uh, you know, industrial hemp crops without permission from the federal government. And if the federal government is basically shorthanded, which they are on virtually everything, that, yeah. is, that is an effective nullification of that federal act. And, I mean, do they really want to be seen in the climate that they've created for themselves with their stupidity bringing a SWAT team in to arrest a farmer who's growing a product that, despite all of the villainization of it, is not a drug, right? And that's that. I think that that's an interesting way to look at nullification, because I think everybody thinks, okay, so I'm in Texas, I go to Austin, I get my state to enact a, revol a resolution to nullify this federal law, but there's other ways to do that. And what you just said, I didn't even know that was going on, but that kind of falls under, like, pick the time and place for your battle. Yeah, so that, that was a good time for them to make that move. Colorado's already got a law that's that's you know legalized recreational marijuana. So if the feds want to fight in Colorado over marijuana or hemp or whatever, that's probably the fight they're going to take. They can't really afford to mess around with this thing that doesn't hurt anybody, no matter what you think about drugs, I, I would imagine. Well, and that is really the important part, because nullification is broader than that traditional concept of, yeah, go to your state capital, pass a bill. But then again, that can be a very important part of it, because people feel empowered. So uh, the state of Tennessee and South Carolina, the governors in each state, just in the last couple of weeks, 
also signed bills to legalize the farming and production of industrial hemp, which, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, Jack, this is used in, in granola and oils and paper and clothes and rope and all kinds of just normal day-to-day products that you can find everywhere from Walmart to Whole Foods. And they're saying, hey, you know, they didn't actually say we're going to, quote, nullify the federal act, but the yeah. end result of saying we're going to authorize and we're going to encourage by the passage of this state law that which the federal government says is illegal, which they actually don't have the constitutional authority to do, the end result is very positive. More people start doing more things. And this can be applied to everything. Gold and silver coins. The states are supposed to, under the Constitution, only allow the use of gold, gold and silver as a tender of payments and debt. So uh, they can start passing legislation that actually effectuates that constitutional requirement. You can ban the state from enforcing or carrying out federal gun control measures. Most in our research, anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of federal gun laws require state or local enforcement assistance to actually carry them out. So if you were to look at a Department of Justice press release talking about some big bust that they're very proud of, you'll always see that at the end, this was a joint measure between sure. the DOJ plus state and local uh, attorneys and law enforcement. You know, maybe it yeah. was maybe it was one or two federal agents and ten local guys going in to, to bust somebody for, for owning a weapon or, or a firearm that they're just using to protect themselves or something that the federal government doesn't want them to have. So you could actually take action like Idaho just did in the last couple of months to say that the state, if there are any new federal gun control measures, the state is going to totally stand down and not participate in this. And Judge Andrew Napolitano uh, recently said that if states were to do this for specifically on federal gun control, just simply stop participating in the federal enforcement, this is his words, it would render them, quote, nearly impossible to enforce. And while that's not 100% perfect, I think I would take nearly impossible to enforce on federal gun control rather than what it is today. I mean, what we're talking about in, in a, a, an opposal, in, a, in a opposition to rescinding laws or passing new laws is more decriminalization at the state level. So, for instance, if, so, you know, technically everybody out there buying medical marijuana for instance is breaking federal law absolutely but the states individually have issued that person a permit so that to me and correct me if i'm wrong please requires that the state therefore defend the individual so it actually places a responsibility let's say on the state of california if the federal government tries to enforce their law in the borders of california for the california government to step in between and say we issued that person a permit it is legal in our state your your issues with us not them I absolutely agree with that in principle. It's rare that this actually happens like sure. this. Here in California where I live, oftentimes the, the local government, because of something known as asset forfeiture, and this happens all around the country, uh, local law enforcement gets millions and millions of dollars all around the country to help the federal government carry out their enforcement actions, whether it's on drugs or guns or whatever it may be, water issues, uh, land, etc. So it is one step to say that the state or the people of the state are, quote, authorized under state law to do something that the federal government prohibits. And that could be, as we've seen, marijuana. Now, 21, 22 states define them. Now, hemp production, we're looking at five states. We're looking at states like Missouri, Kansas, 
Idaho and others taking steps forward to do the same on the right to keep and bear arms, defying federal gun control measures. Georgia took a big step forward saying they weren't going to participate in major portions of the Affordable Care Act with a new law that was introduced uh, and passed uh, by Representative Jason Spencer just over the last few months. It goes into effect in July. So you can do this across the political spectrum on any issue you can think of. Say you're not going to participate. This is not going to be part of our day-to-day life here. And then over time, as a groundswell of people start taking that action, then I think the time will be ripe to start saying, wow, well, why isn't the state stepping in and interposing and defending that which it has authorized? And I think there will be a time where that will start happening more and more. And, and don't you think that the more this happens, the less control the federal government actually has over it? There's a point at which there's just it, it's, it's too late, especially on specific issues. So as you mentioned with marijuana or now industrial hemp, I think you can get really heated debates about the marijuana thing because of the demonization of, of the, the, you know, and it is a drug. But the hemp thing, it's, it's, it's preposterous. It is absolutely preposterous. Um, and when you have, if you end up with 30 states that have, you know, decriminalized it, if you want to use that word, it, it almost becomes impossible at that point for the federal government to change its mind and start to do something about it because you can't get your arms around it at that point. It's too uh, disjointed. It's too fragmented. There's too many different states that you have to that have done it in different ways, which is kind of the way it was supposed to be in the first place. And 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 how do they do anything about it at that point, really? They don't have the manpower, period. Last year, and uh, one of the guys who writes for our website at 10th Amendment Center.com, Mike Meharry, he's put out a couple of books. He had this great article about this medical or this marijuana raid done by the federal government in Denver. It was the biggest raid in Colorado history, and the best they were able to pull off was shutting down approximately 4% of marijuana businesses in one city. If they, mm. this, just to shut down one city would be more than their yearly budget for the entire DEA for the full year. They don't have the ability to do this. I would like to see this applied to, for example, there are nine states in the last five years that have passed what are called Firearms Freedom Acts. This is a, a piece of legislation, a law that uh, exists in Montana, Tennessee, Utah, Wyoming, and elsewhere that says if we make a gun in our state and it's sold in our state, this is not part of interstate commerce because yep. it is only existing within the state. I'd like to see a follow-up effectuating bill introduced and passed in all those nine states and others, maybe like a, a dispensary for co-op, uh, you know, a, a cooperatively built and uh, uh, assembled firearms, just like they've done for dispensaries for marijuana. Ooh. This is a very interesting. This is a very interesting. <laughs> wouldn't that be interesting if you if you set up basically the facilities enabling like a you know CNC shops and all, and if if. Um, Smith and Wesson wanted to manufacture under that law. They could actually put a small crew inside Montana, do it in Montana. It's a Montana gun to a Montana resident. Federal government go away. It's not your business. Well, and that's exactly what's happened, and it has worked. 
It is absolutely working on the issue of marijuana. Why not apply that same strategy, which we see working probably better than any political action in modern times? How many things have people wanted to change on a federal level by voting bums out? Well, all they get is new bums and more of the same. They get more bailouts, more attacks on their liberty, more regulation, more control, worse foreign policy, worse economy, uh, more printing of money at the Federal Reserve. It all just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It's a steady snowball effect. Well, why not take something that's actually being effective? The people have set a blueprint. The people who believe in medical marijuana or legalized marijuana have gotten a lot of stuff done by doing this on a state-by-state level. They, they, They legalize it in the state, then they authorize places to distribute it and manufacture it, basically the dispensaries. They give licenses. Why not a medical firearm bill? Those who are who are <laughs> the weakest among us. I mean, it might sound silly, yeah. but if you think about it, those, you know, an, a, an elderly person or someone who might be partially disabled, let's say they, you know, have a proficiency with a weapon. Why not let them have something that, like the 1934 Firearms or Gun Control Act, whatever it was called, the National Gun It was an NFA back in 1934. I can't remember the name of the federal act. But why not authorize them on a state level to have a gun that's made in state by a local cooperative to help those who need uh, help most against those who might take advantage of them for being weak? I mean, this is basically what they've done. It's what they've done on medical marijuana. And in fact, that's the exact same thing that happened that stopped alcohol prohibition in this country. If you look back in the 1920s, there was a very famous speech by Senator Bruce from from Maryland, and he basically said, look, we've had national prohibition for six some odd years here, or however long it was at the time, but it hasn't gone into effect because the states aren't enforcing it. We can't get it done on our own. And this is something that we're seeing time and time again, but what's most interesting on this is this is exactly what the guy known as the father of the Constitution told us, James Madison. He wrote something in a a paper called Federalist Paper Number 46. Anybody can Google this and look it up. It's basically talking about how the states and federal government would kind of compete to get things done. And and if people didn't want a, a certain federal policy, they should specifically use a, quote, refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. And Madison himself, the guy known as the guy who structured the Constitution, said if a bunch of states were to do this, it would create a situation where the federal government would be hardly willing to encounter it. In other words, if you want to get something done, you want to stop the feds from doing things, stop playing along with them, stop participating and work within your state to resist them. And that's exactly what we're doing at the 10th Amendment Center every day. Well, and here's what I love about this. The way that these laws are passed in the first place, is always by fear. Something must be done. Think mm-hmm. of the children, whatever. Once the law's been around for a while, the fear actually is worse than it was during the climate that it was, it was put in place because people have now believed that the law worked because nothing bad has happened uh, with that law there. And if that law went away, Oh, my God. And if the law's been there longer than the person's been alive, you know, they get all these horror stories about how it was the wild, wild west everywhere and everybody was getting shot or whatever it is. So there's this natural apprehension about removing that law or preempting that law. And it's much easier to get done at a state level or a local level. And when somebody does it and then everybody's like, but that's going to go. Everything's going to explode, whatever. You know, people's brains will fall out. And you look and you go, well, you know what happened there? Nothing. Right. Nothing happened. 
There's no, no, there's no big deal. Nobody's dying. Nobody's laying in the street dead. Nothing happened. Then other people start going, well, why can't we have that too? Well, see, it's dangerous for you. Well, wait a minute. It's not dangerous for them over there. Well, they're different from you. Well, how? How are they different from you? I thought you said we're all the same. And all of a sudden, it becomes, it, it proves that, that we don't need that law because people can, in fact, exist and live and survive and thrive without it. And think about it. This is, as you mentioned, Jack, this is the way the system's supposed to work. You know, you, you've got, you know, 300 some odd million people living under a big defense umbrella. Well, they don't all think the same. People in South Carolina aren't necessarily going to have California perspectives. People in Montana aren't going to have Florida perspectives. This is the only way you can get so many people with different religious personal, economic, social viewpoints, all living together under the under that defense umbrella in peace. Otherwise, as uh, if you're familiar with Tom Woods, author Tom Woods, he has often said in speeches, you know, otherwise we end up with what we have today, which is a low-grade civil war every couple of years to have one side control everything over the other. Well, that's failing because Yep. The end result is every, no one gets what they want. Approval on Congress is always horrible. And it's just this political game of like, we're going to win against your guy. And no one ever accomplishes anything. Whether, I mean, I can talk to progressives and, and they can't stand what they have. They've got Obama, the so-called peace president who bombs people. They don't like that yeah. either. But, yeah. but for some reason, they're still happy. <laughs> I told those people that was going to happen before he got elected. Just, I'm like, you people that are voting for this guy because you think he's going to end these wars, you are out of your flipping mind. And of, of course he did. He got the Nobel Peace Prize one day and is blowing up people at a wedding the next day. Yeah, I mean, and this just happens year in and year out. And this idea of moving the activity, the action, the energy, the activism closer to home, whether on a state, a county, a local, or an individual level, this is empowering because people can actually start to do things. They can actually accomplish things rather than just trying to be on the winning team that never does anything right for you anyways. And I think yeah. that's why more and more people are jumping to that flag. See, there's a lot of things that you look at and you think this is the only way to get them done. So one of the there's a there's a small movement, but it's a growing movement right now of people that do home distilling. So people yes. that are basically making what they call moonshine, except they're not making moonshine because they're not out under the moon. And it's it's an inherently safe process. You really can't screw it up unless you want to, and then you're going to hurt yourself some other way anyway. Um, it's something most of our grandparents knew how to do. Um, there are countries where it's legal, like New Zealand, and there's a pretty big movement to try to get something done. But everybody in that movement is focusing on we need to do this in Washington because Washington's the ones that say we can't do it. But that would be a perfect example of why can't the state of Florida or Texas or Alabama pass a law that says it's legal up to a certain amount and issue a permit for it. And it's a revenue source for the state. I don't like the state getting tax money, but... It beats being put in federal prison for making a half a gallon of moonshine. Yeah, and here's the way I look at it. I don't like the state, the local, any of these people. They're all horrible, really, when you yes. get down to right. it. But the practical effect of the state saying, we're going to license something, we're going to permit something, it actually just encourages people on the margins to say, oh, okay, 
well, I guess I can do that now. And this is what we've seen with marijuana and hemp, for example. Without licensing, for example, Oregon passed a law in 2009 that authorized the production and farming of industrial hemp. But because they don't have a regulatory scheme, everyone in the state is kind of afraid to start doing it. it. In Colorado, they say, okay, we're going to start doing this. So then people start planting. And I think other than those of us who are really in the know that recognize that, look, you really should shouldn't get state or local permission or permits or whatever it may be as well. That isn't really philosophically right as well. But for the general public, they see that, okay, well, the state is saying this is the process. This is how it's done. It, that is what actually encourages people to take action, especially when it's already illegal on the federal level. So this distilling idea, I think it's awesome. I mean, because... Well, first of all, I can't think of the last time the federal government passed something that actually expanded freedom. I just can't. No, maybe, they maybe don't there's do that. It just doesn't happen. And, they don't do it. And they don't ever repeal their laws. So the idea of spending one's life and energy and time on calling Congress and faxing and sending petitions, I can guarantee you that whatever the issue is, whether it's distilling or, or anything else, it's not going to work. If it does, it's a one in a million chance. We can actually get something to work. Yes, pass something in Florida. Say, Yes, you can start. Uh, I guess it's not moonshine, well, but yeah. And then look, look at it this way, right? So let's say Texas does this, and Texas says a permit is forty dollars every five years, about the same price as a driver's license down here. You apply for it. It's a revenue source for the state, so the state has an incentive. Their incentive is money. Now, the federal government isn't going to issue a permit for something like that. It's going to get handed to the states anyway, even if they decriminalize that at the federal right. level. They administer that. So what's the incentive for the federal government to decriminalize the behavior? It's a controversial issue. It's going to piss some people off. Some people might get voted out of office over it. Some people might think it's a terrible idea. There's no real incentive for the federal government to say, yeah, you guys can make up to, you know, like they did with home brewing, you can make up to so many hundred gallons a year, and, and, and we're not going to bother you. There's no real reason for them to do that, yet there is a risk associated politically. So no incentive plus political risk, state level, very low political risk, and incentive of a revenue stream. So it just would make sense that it would be easier to do with anything at that state level. I mean, if you think about it from a California perspective, if I were to call Barbara Boxer, I can guarantee <laughs> Barb is not calling me back. No. And no. probably not the local guy can't even think of his name here in Los Angeles. Probably not, but maybe. And I do know where his office is, so I could pop in and at least talk to a staffer. That's not. Mm -hmm. I'd probably get arrested if I showed up in a boxer's office. Oh, you would as some kind yeah. of evil terrorist. And this is so the idea of actually having a chance. Now, this is. I don't want people to get the idea that okay, if you start doing things locally, it's it's simple, it's guaranteed, it's going to happen. No no, 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 no. These people are evil. They love money. They love federal grants and handouts. <laughs> they love ripping you off with licenses and fees and tickets and smart meters and all this garbage that they do. But you know what? Sometimes, especially in smaller communities, those people live in your neighborhood. They go to your church. They go to your local Denny's. They go to the local grocery store. And you know what Sam Adams would have done? They would have, they would have prevented them from coming in any of those stores. I mean, that's how they would have dealt with it back then. I don't know if people have the backbone to do that kind of stuff today, but maybe at some point that's the kind of pressure that politicians need. Look, just ostracize them. But, I mean, the other side of this is if you have a, a politician locally that doesn't want to play ball – especially a state con congressperson in a midterm election on a two-year cycle when the turnout's not that big, 
couple thousand people can swing one of them elections really, really, really fast. I mean, just like at breakneck speed. There, a lot of these districts, you know, there's 1,500, 2,000 votes on one side. Nobody shows up to vote for them. Right, because it's usually a shoe-in. And, you know, the other thing that we hear, and we've been doing, so started out as a blog, just writing, trying to educate people, and then started building some activism components on various issues, whether it's on the Affordable Care Act or hemp or the right to keep and bear arms. On, on getting legislation introduced, we have model legislation on six or seven different issues that can be introduced on a state level. We've actually learned over a period of five or six years that even with some of the really bad legislators, even if they keep winning, 15 to 20 phone calls makes their ears open. Their eyebrows are nice and high. That's a big deal because people don't mm -hmm. get phone calls in the, in the state government. They just don't get those calls to take action on a particular issue. So this bill that moved forward uh, in Georgia to ban the state from participating in pretty major sections of the Affordable Care Act, that actually the entire establishment, the full Republican establishment, hated the idea of stopping Obamacare in that state. They were all in favor of participating. I mean, it took a lot of work. They ended up with 34,000 petitions. But in comparison to the population of Georgia, that's not a lot. And people just, they just organized. They went to grocery stores. They got signatures. They made phone calls. And then, you know, sooner or later, even the establishment was like they couldn't, they couldn't say no to it, even though they wanted to, and the governor signed it into law, and it goes into effect in July. So just some type of real grassroots activism. A lot of this stuff has been done very prominently on the left over the years, and I know a lot of the people that I've worked with from the traditional right say, you know, that's a tool of the left. I don't want to do it. Well, I tell you what, the tool of the left is working, and it's working pretty damn well on every issue. So let's employ those strategies and get it done for those things that we believe in as well. See, here's my issue with the whole left-right paradigm as it gets pushed into this. I don't care whether you're left or right. You should be for these things because these things do not affect you unless you choose to have them affect you. Nice. And, and, and it's about the government interfering with you, and I don't care whether you're for welfare or you're opposed to welfare. You should be opposed to the state interfering with your right to, to, to engage in an activity that harms no one. I mean that that's what that really comes down to and I I I don't I don't get how people continue to polarize on certain issues that do not affect them personally. Well, I think uh, it's very unfortunate, and I, it's part of the system. It's of, part of our programming, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's this whole winner-take-all mentality. Everything's a one-size-fits-all solution for everything, and you're either on the red team or the blue team, and you hate the guys on the other team no matter what they do, and you love the guys on your team, or you're okay with them no matter what they do, and that certainly that trickles down. It's the trickle-down centralization mentality all the way to the local level. It's very unfortunate. I'm glad that you actually take the... Uh, the better view. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very libertarian, and in, in that instance, many social issues that are opposed by the right, I'm like, well, they're like, well, are you for or against it? And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't. It's not my problem, and it's not your problem either. Well, I think that's bad behavior. Well, that's fine. There's a lot of bad behaviors that I would agree with you are bad behaviors, by the way, that we don't police because it's not our business to tell someone else how to live. They're flipping life. But, but what I'd like to kind of pull back to a little bit here is it would seem to me that one of the big things you just touched on briefly a, a few segments ago is blowback 
to these states that do these things. Because the big thing the federal government always says is, well, maybe you don't need your highway money this year, or maybe you don't need this, or maybe you don't need that. Do they ever actually make good on those threats, though? No, they're very scary. They sound tough, and they always threaten. But then when you get down to it, uh, Real ID is a very good example. This was a, a piece of legislation that is not authorized by the Constitution, basically putting control over state driver's licenses in the hands of the federal government, a one-size-fits-all solution. I don't. See, I mean, I read the Constitution, and the federal government is authorized to do those things which have been delegated to them in the Constitution. And there's really nothing in there about uh, identification papers for the federal government. No, so, there's none. Nothing. <laughs> Zero. So 2005, uh, the Republican Party and the Congress and the Bush administration pushed this through. The idea was this is going to protect you against the illegal immigration inv- uh, Im- invasion that's coming. They, they use that as a scare tactic to get control over, over something else. And you know what? By 2008, when it was supposed to be implemented, a handful of states said, well, our DMVs aren't going to do this. And without the state DMV, they couldn't get it implemented. And then over a period of years, uh, more and more states kept passing either resolutions or laws saying we're not going to implement this. And in much of this, the country today, some of it is it, that, you know, they backtracked and other places they just, you know, like California, they love the idea of it, of whatever the federal government wants and in some situations. Uh, but in other states, they're just not participating in it. Montana says no way. They passed a law that says they will never participate in it. And the governor at the time says, hey, if they don't like it, they can go to hell. This is a famous interview he did on, N- on NPR. <laughs> they can go to hell if they don't like it. And the feds over and over Each year there was a deadline, like 2009, 10, 11. Uh, Department of Homeland Security would say, you know what, if you're not going to start implementing this, we're not going to let people get on planes. We're not going to let them enter federal buildings, which I don't see why anyone would want to anyways, but that's a side story. Uh, You're not going to be able to do these things. And when the deadline came and the states didn't comply, then they said, well, we're going to have a new deadline and a new deadline, and it keeps pushing back and back and back. And we see that on other issues as well, and it just goes to show you that they like to threaten, but, you know, they're really kind of a house of cards as well, if you think about it. They need our compliance and support. They want to stay in power, and if they start doing crazy things like blocking people from traveling to visit their family, they're going to have a serious problem on their hands if they don't already. Well, they also need our attention. They want to be relevant. They want to matter. They want us to look at them and see what they're doing and think that we need them in our lives. And I think one of the the, the weapons that are employed with nullification is also kind of an, of apathy, right? Like, we just don't care about you anymore in regard to this thing because we've decided that we're going to do that in Georgia or Texas or Florida or California, and now you don't matter here anymore. And I think that actually scares them more then the nullification itself, the, the, the inherent irrelevancy to that need that they immediately are assigned when people just say, we don't like you anymore for this. Just don't, we, don't, we don't care. I love it. I wrote an article for LouRockwell.com a few years ago. Basically, the subject was, you know, this Constitution Day, celebrate the Constitution by turning your back on everything that the federal government is doing because... They're not authorized to do it. Stop participating, because if they pass another regulation or if they, let's say they ban, and, uh, you know, semi-automatic firearms over the entire country. Well, if people don't turn them in, that law means nothing. 
and anything they do, if people don't participate, obviously there's risk to these things, but there is strength in numbers. And we see this happening on various issues. It's happened over the years. It's happened most prominently on marijuana today and in the 1850s, very prominently in resistance to federal slavery laws where all the northern states uh, in, throughout the 1850s says they weren't going to participate in the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. This was something that required states to basically capture someone because they had the wrong color skin and send them into ownership in the South. They stopped doing it, and it worked. The, the law couldn't be enforced. So let's use that tactic on everything that's important to us. Obviously, each person has a busy life, and we can't get involved in every issue. But pick an issue that's important to you and work to take these actions. Use this strategy, this blueprint, to further liberty for the issue that's most important to you. You know, and the thing is, there's there's government lovers, I guess I would call them, on both sides, the left and the right, and they often really don't like the concept of nullification. It's villainized a lot. Um, a lot of times they bring up, of course, the Civil War and the secession of the states and, you know, basically kind of trying to say that, like, we did that and, and it, you don't get to do that anymore. Like, the, 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 the Union won, therefore nullification no longer applies. This is as constitutional and relevant today as it was the day the document was signed, correct? Absolutely, and there's a couple of misnomers in that general uh, history book lesson that they give to <laughs> us, and one of them is that, the South wasn't nullifying anything. I mean, depending on what your view of why the South seceded, and I know different people have different viewpoints and beliefs and theories, but let's say you take the idea that the South seceded because they wanted to keep slavery. I mean, there's some documents that say that, but let's just go with that. Sure. Well, what were they nullifying? Slavery was legal in the Constitution. They weren't the ones nullifying. It was actually the northern states, as I mentioned very briefly just a minute ago, that were actually nullifying the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. So the distorted history that the government-run schools give us is that the nullifiers were the ones that were in favor of slavery. Well, that's a total lie because it was the nullifiers. And people like John Greenleaf Whittier, uh, the great abolitionist poet, uh, that was actually in favor of nullification of federal slavery laws. And even the South Carolina Declaration of Causes in 1860, you can Google this, find it at Yale uh, on their website, for example. This is the reason they gave for uh, for their secession. And, the, they, you know, they, it goes through two parts, explaining their belief in the, the nature of the Union. And the second part was their list of causes. The number one thing was that all the northern states were nullifying the federal slave laws. And so uh, the, the history that we've been given is backwards. And we hear this from the law professors, the legal experts, uh, the politicians, the pundits, all this stuff. And it's, it's our duty, our role here at, at 10th Amendment Center to to correct that. And I think more and more people are learning it and know that that nullification has been used for very positive things throughout history. Well, the establishment must hate that. Because, you know, I inherently think slavery was an, elite, uh, uh, an evil practice, and that makes the nullifiers... The good guy. Yeah, no, they can't stand it. Now, how, how can we... Because, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen Tom's thing with the interview with a zombie, yeah. right? You know, racist, that thing, right? And that's about nullification. And it, it's it, it's exactly the the card that's played today when anybody brings it up. Some it's like hearkening back to the racist South, but 
I, I agree with what you said, but I never heard it quite put that way before, that the nullifiers were in the north. Yeah, they were definitely the good guys. Uh, starting in 1850, when the Federal Fugitive Slave Act was passed, it was Vermont that fall that passed what was called the habeas corpus law, uh, it effectively nullifying the federal act. So the feds wanted Vermont to, to just capture any black person who was pointed out to be property of some guy from the South and participate in the enforcement of sending them down to the South. If you saw 12 years a slave, this is basically what was happening uh, around that time. And the northern states didn't want to participate in it, so they passed these laws saying, we're not going to do this. And in fact, in 1855 in Massachusetts, they passed one called uh, the Personal Liberty Act of Massachusetts, and they said that anybody who comes in here doing this, federal or state, trying to capture someone without any due process, they're going to be guilty of kidnapping. So, I mean, they took this stuff seriously. And after Massachusetts passed it, no one else, there were no more kidnappings like that from the Northeast after Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, Rhode Island, and others started passing these laws. It was very, very effective. And in fact, uh, President Millard Fillmore, he actually threatened to invade Vermont over this. Uh, but because enough states resisted and said, no, we're not going to participate in it, again, it was huff and puff. Because it was, well, it was the federal, but the, the big thing, the upshot to this, that, that always gets left out of this discussion, unless it's with an enlightened person like yourself, is that it was the federal government that was empowering slavery in the first place. Absolutely. It, it really wasn't the South. Without the federal government trying to say, yeah, we recognize this, and this state is a slave state, and that's not, that was what gave the greatest power to slave ownership. The federal government, in most bad situations through history, has been the bad guy. I can't think of any off the, I'm just saying most, because I'm sure there's some time they've done something good, but off the top of my head, they're generally the bad guy. States are often bad guys, too, but they don't have the power or resources of the federal government, so there have been very good times in history where states have actually acted as an effective check, just like the father of the Constitution recommended, use your states to create a refusal to cooperate with officers of the Union, and you're going to be effective in stopping. Now, Madison was really interesting on this. Some people think that nullification should only be employed for unconstitutional federal acts. Well, if you read Federalist number 46, Madison doesn't make a distinction. He says, hey, use this strategy. He doesn't call it nullification there, but he says, yeah. stop participating. He says, use this strategy either for unwarrantable measures, those were the unconstitutional ones, or warrantable but unpopular ones. So even if they're authorized to do something, but you just don't like it, Madison was telling us, hey, it's not going to be easy to get the federal government to stop itself. So here's a way to get them to stop doing things you don't want them to do. And that is, I think, a very important distinction as well. Yeah, um, I completely agree with that. I think that, again, that it, what we've seen throughout history is, is this, this concept that somehow – nullification is wrong or evil or for people that won't accept the things the way they are as they're supposed to. Because it, what it really is is for people that refuse to accept things the way they are because they're not supposed to be. Um, there, there, There is a lot of traction, I think, getting behind these kinds of concepts. What do you think the biggest thing holding a null, the nullification movement on a, on a defragmented national level back? What, what, what is missing? Is it just an understanding, a knowledge that it's possible, that it's legal, that it's constitutional, that it's right? What holds back? Because it seems like this should be being done a lot more. Well, I think it is being done quite a bit already. There have been five states that have 
that of this year or within the last uh, 13, 14 months have passed laws to effectively nullify a very narrow uh, practical effect of what the NSA does with their mass surveillance, and that is they collect location information on, on everyone's cell phone. They tra- I mean, everyone can be tracked at any time, and then what they do is through this secretive thing called the Special Operations Division, they take that information and they pass it along to state and local government to use in non-terrorism, just regular routine law enforcement. Well, five states now have passed laws to say, we're not going to do that anymore. So that's a narrow thing, but it's being done. In uh, California, of all places, the, the state Senate just voted 29 to 1 to pass a bill that says we're not going to. It creates a mechanism to turn off resources like power and water to NSA facilities. There's, you know, I was I, that's on my notes. I just wrote that down while you were talking because I wanted to talk about that type of a, of a nullification. Utah, they're talking about shutting off the water to that monstrosity. Yes. Yes, and we wrote that legislation that was, oh, wow. that was uh, introduced. We created the strategy here. Looking at it, we spent about three, four weeks last summer after the Snowden revelations came out and everybody started knowing what was going on, whatever you think of Snowden. I mean, this, this was the time where people became very aware. Looking at this and saying, can we actually do something? Can we use this 10th or nullification strategy against the NSA? And at first, my thought was like, are you kidding? No way. There's, I mean, they just they collect information and then, what what can we do about it? But over time, I started digging and I found some redacted uh, DOD documents that talked about how all these new facilities were opening and they all relied on local power or water contracts to provide them the resources they needed to operate. And that's the big thing, for example, in Utah. That facility is projected to use 1.7 million gallons of water every single day and that water Hmm. comes from the state of Utah. Well, there's nothing... There's nothing in case law, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires Utah to provide water to the federal government. They can simply just say, hey, no, we're, we're not in on this. There's an existing contract, so maybe they can pass legislation to wind that down. They're actually exploring that with some public hearings this summer for a bill introduction in January, but they're certainly mm-hmm. approaching it. There's a, a, a wide just weird spectrum of groups who would normally be at each other's throats, hating each other, working together on this. And I think it's very exciting. It's a real approach. Tom Woods interviewed me on his podcast recently. He said, hey, a lot of these things that you talk about, you know, they're very interesting. They seem pretty powerful. They can get things done. But, man, if you can get a state like Utah to turn off the water or Texas to turn off the electricity to the new data center that's going to be bigger than the Utah one, opening opening up in San Antonio at the old Sony – a warehouse. If you can get Texas to turn off the electricity, this is going to which we can do because absolutely. unlike every other state, it's our electricity. Yes, and that's that's why they went to Texas because of the independent power grid. Because back mm. back in 2006, they maxed out the Baltimore area power supply, and their internal documents, which we found through some research and and requests and things like that, they were basically saying they were concerned about a shutdown of the agency because they were already at even in 2006, they were collecting so much information that the power grid couldn't handle it. And that's why Texas is so important to the NSA. And Texas can say, no, you can't have our electricity to do this kind of stuff. That's historic. If that happens, we're talking... That would be great. I put very little confidence in, <laughs> in the, the sleaze in a suit that is Rick Perry to do that. No, no, it's Rick Perry. No, he does have... 
he does like to hold up the the you know independent Texas uh, mantra a lot of times. He doesn't usually act on it, but he he likes to make big words about it. So if you made enough words about it and it got through the the legislature, it would be almost impossible for him politically to not sign it. This is what I love about Rick Perry, who I think is a sleazeball as well. But because <laughs> he's such a slimeball and he lacks a lot of principle, he actually can go with the wind. So if the wind yeah. is blowing to do something right. I think he actually can be pressured to do doing something right, unlike someone like Rick Santorum, who has so much principle, all of which are gener- is generally bad, isn't going to do what the public pressures him to do no matter what. It doesn't matter. Some guys like that just are not going to do the right thing no matter what. But uh, a slimy politician oftentimes is better than uh, one with a lot of bad principles. because Slimy politicians work if you have an educated electorate. Yes, of course. Of course. That's, that's what you need is an educated and active electorate. Now, I will tell you that the Texas House and Senate can be moved by phone calls. I've seen it done. Rick Perry signed exactly one executive order in his first eight years Mm. of governorship. One. And it was to require the Gardasil vaccine for all girls uh, over 14 in our school systems. And that was right after his chief of staff went to work for Merck as a lobbyist. Right. Right, so... But what happened was even people that thought, well, maybe we should do that went, oh, so he circumvented, circumvented the legislature. Yeah. This is, and this is the only time you've ever done this? Oh, and, w- and when it broke on a couple big news stations in Houston and Dallas that his chief of staff had gone, in fact, to work for Merck, it was a hailstorm, and it took one week for the state legislature to call an emergency session and override the executive order and say if this is going to be done, it's going to go through process. So that's an example so of... It can happen. Yeah. It, you know, because people were scared. I mean, they're, the, the, these guys wanted to keep their jobs because even though it doesn't pay well on paper, it pays well to be connected into the state senate in Texas right. or the, the state house. And they were, they were afraid they were, their heads were going to roll. And we were coming up on an election, too. And no one wanted anything. That they're like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this through process. We're not going to have this done. And Perry's explanation was, well, that way the state insurance will pay for it. <laughs> and the insurance companies will have to pay for it. And if we don't require it, these girls are going to be unprotected. And it's an expensive vaccine. So his actual reason for doing it was so that public money and insurance money could be forced to pay this company. That that was his reason. He actually gave that publicly, and I don't know how, but he got reelected. Yeah, well, he just keeps it just keeps happening. But I, well, the the next year he ran up against some Democrat that was just the what was her name? Uh, grandma, whatever. It was a former comptroller general, and then uh, Kinky Friedman yeah. was in that, and there was a fourth candidate as well. There were four candidates that year, and I think he got thirty nine percent of the vote, which was enough to win. Right, right. And but <laughs> I think the positive there is. With a serious groundswell, not just in Texas, but in other states as well. I mean, the fact that California is the first state to actually start moving forward on this type of bill against the NSA, it's very likely it'll pass the assembly and get to Moonbeam's desk. Whether he'll sign it or not is another story, but it's very likely this type of legislation will get there, and it has the support from the left and the right. It has support from Tea Party. It also has support from the ACLU and other groups. And this is really powerful. So can we get a follow-up on that in Utah in 2015? I don't know. I do know that in Illinois, people who believe in medical marijuana, to go back to that issue, it took them 10 years to get a very narrow victory. So sometimes you're going to go and you're going to get a bill introduced and you'll see it passed in the first try. And other times, 
you have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Ten years on a federal level, you're guaranteed that the federal government is going to be bigger and more powerful than it is today. But ten years of energy and effort on a state or a local level, you can actually get something done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a lesson. Um, I, again, I consider myself libertarian, damn near anarchist, honestly. Um, but I do analyze what works by the people doing it. And I think one thing that the left is good at that the right isn't is incrementalism and sticking with something and keeping the work on it. They'll never give up on an issue. And that's because they want to control you where the, the right generally, at least the, at the, the public level, right. the, the marketing to those people is such a, that the, the average Republican, not politician, but Joe Workaday wants less government, and but they're not – Active the way the left is, and they won't take a small. They want all or nothing. Where the left will take every little tiny piece, and it makes me think of the army cadence: left, 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 right, left. Where both sides are taking us to oppression, but boy, the left seems to get a step a lot more often. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jack, that you brought up. You know, what's one of the biggest obstacles? And one of the biggest obstacles that we actually encounter is the mentality of all or nothing. There are many people that we run into. So, for example, uh, in South Carolina, there was a, a great Obamacare nullification bill introduced in uh, late 2012. I mean, it's a two-year session in this state. I think it was 2012. We had recommend that uh, they take a more moderate, small step forward. But the, the grassroots leaders in that state insisted on getting the entire thing shut down in, in one fell swoop, and, and our recommendation was like, when you're the first state to try to do something, you need to just move the ball forward. We rarely see any time in history the first people to do something getting it all done in one try. So they, they put about a year and a half worth of effort into this and ended up with nothing. Uh, whereas if they had taken a moderate step forward, it's very likely, because we know from even some of the establishment leader types, uh, they would have supported a smaller step forward, and uh, we could be uh, set up the stage for something stronger in the next session and said we're still starting from scratch and we find that on various issues uh, that mentality that if we don't get it all now everything's going to collapse in 18 months well whether everything collapses in 18 months or not I do want to make positive forward movements at every stage possible and I will never settle for zero movement forward yeah, I mean, I think that's that's something we do need to learn. Um, I think as a people, as a whole, let's take the left right out of it, that mm -hmm. you, you've got to take what you can get when you can get it. Well, and if you don't, you never start moving. So it's like the person that says, I refuse to run the marathon until I know I can run the whole marathon at one time in, in, in near record pace. Well, you're going to have to probably jog a few couple miles here and there and start to build up some endurance and, and get down the road. And if you never start to take that first step, you'll never go anywhere. And, and that's something that the people of this country um, have, have yet to comprehend in many instances, I think, especially when you're on what I would say is the, the correct side of the issue. It's the people that want to control others that are willing to run that marathon. And the people that simply don't want to control others, and I think part of it's just 
a, a mentality and, and a lifestyle. People that don't want to control others are usually pretty busy people. Yes. They're out doing important stuff. They're they're running businesses and creating jobs and raising families and engaged with their churches and their community centers and volunteering as fire department people in, in where there's only volunteer. They're actually doing important work in their lives and they only have so much time to dedicate to get things done. So it's natural that they're predisposed to think we either need this done or not. Right? We either win or we lose. And there's, I think there's also wired into the brain of people, and I'm guilty of this myself, because when you achieve stuff, that's how you're wired to think. Get it done, win it, accomplish it. That's why we like to run businesses. I don't have to go through 47 different layers if it's my company. I can just act. So that mentality is at direct odds with the reality that you have to contend with when you're dealing with government. Sure, and even on the state level, again, 99% of these politicians are the bad guys. They aren't on our side. We only want to put them, box them into a corner where the only thing they can do that's politically feasible is the right thing. And on some issues, we are able to accomplish that. Now, keep in mind this strategy of getting one step at a time. We also have to keep in mind that the long goal is what we want. The, the all or nothing is really what we want at the end and run of it all. So mm -hmm. our strategy, we actually advise, so if people are, are introducing legislation, legislation, for example, on, let's say, uh, stopping Obamacare. We would advise actually introducing two bills, one that takes the small step forward and then one that does everything. So you can work on them at the same time. Maybe you can get the small step forward passed, but at the same time, you're already educating people on the full bore product at the same time while you're getting the first one forward. You're getting the negative media attention and learning what the attacks are going to be, and you learn strategically who's going to oppose you by doing that, and that makes you more powerful the next time around if you can't get it through on the first time. And if you don't get it through on the first time, you also have the lesser, the smaller step, the positive effect going through at the same time that you can actually get past. So we always kind of recommend this two-phase strategy. It's a short game, long game playing at the same time to kind of probe the enemy to learn what's going on, and it can be very effective. Well, I mean, if you look at gun control, right, there's no doubt that the majority of people in government that are for more gun laws and common-sense gun legislation, what they really want is the complete extermination of the Second Amendment. Oh, yeah. That's what they want. They do not want a private citizen to own a gun at all, ever, as in never. Right, that maybe maybe some special people can be collectors with a you know a ten thousand dollar a year stamp or something, that, and they you know they live inside the Capitol building or something. I don't know, but they do not want the average person to be able to buy a gun, not just assault rifles. They don't want any guns at all. Period. That's their goal. But they're smart enough to know they cannot do that in one fell swoop. And if you if you look at how effective the the strategy is, you mentioned uh, the, the the law from 1935. Look at how many laws they've gotten implemented that are unconstitutional since then in that incrementalist approach. And what I have to say to people that are looking for liberty, if we had taken that approach since 1935, how much would we have gotten done? Massive amounts, clearly. I mean, it's really powerful, and that's why, as far as, far as the, the right to keep and bear arms and protecting the Second Amendment, specifically from federal uh, violation, we advise people in this next six months to look at what Idaho passed. They passed a very simple, easy step forward, which is easy for even the establishment politicians to vote for, a bill that says the state isn't going to participate in any new federal gun restrictions beyond what the status quo is today. 
I think a lot of states could pass that, and that would mean that any new attempts are going to run into a brick wall. But at the same time, pass another, introduce another bill, which probably will be opposed by all the establishment across the political spectrum, that says the state isn't going to participate in enforcement of any federal gun control, quote, law or regulation or order or act or treaty or whatever they want to do, because all of it's unconstitutional in the first place. They shouldn't be doing this. It's wrong morally. It's wrong philosophically. It's wrong constitutionally. And that will start educating people on that particular fact more and more. So you get the easy one passed and you educate other people at the same time and up on that particular issue. And we can start using that strategy that they've used on us, Jack, for all these years, for 70 plus years that they've been using this. I guess it's, wow, over 80 years now. Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. And that's on that. I mean, the, the reality is that the incrementalist approach to taking away gun rights started like the day after the Constitution was put in right. place, which is why the Second Amendment was even in the Bill of Rights. It was like there had to be a reason for that. Like there had like because the the average person would have thought we don't need that. You know, in fact, I'm sure you're much more a constitutional scholar than I am. But there were many people that said that the Bill of Rights was a bad idea because if we didn't specifically put something in there that the government in the future would say, well, since it's not in there, that means we can do it. And that's, you know, the genesis of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments was that concern. Right. And I mean, that they actually said that the, the Bill of Rights was superfluous because the government was one of delegated, enumerated powers. And since infringing on the right to keep and bear arms was not something delegated to the federal government, it couldn't do it in the first place. So they're like, what's the point of this? Why are we, why are we adding sure. this? Uh, and they were actually concerned that if you listed out a bunch of rights, that eventually people, as you say, Jack, would get it the other way around. We only have those rights that are listed. And, you know, maybe, you know, the only rights we have are those that government grants us. And in a way, maybe they were right. Those fears were correct because a lot of people, you know, look at, for example, the right to keep and bear arms as coming from the Second Amendment. Well, you, sure. you and I have the right to keep and bear arms, whether the Second Period. Amendment existed or not. That just yeah. happens to be a strategic move to try to restrict government from violating that right. The Second Amendment exists for the preservation of right, not the establishment of the right. right. And I, I think that, the, that you could say that about every right in the Bill of Rights. That, you know, we as a human being, I have a right to speak my mind. Period. End of story, the end over. It is a, to me anyway, a natural inborn right. And I think most human beings with an IQ over three, would agree with that. <laughs> so so the, 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 you know, the, the amendment to preserve free speech does not give me the right to free speech. It is designed to protect inherently the existing right of freedom of speech. And the Second Amendment, protecting right to keep and bear arms, is about my inherent right to self-preservation and self-protection. Right. It's just that, that arms are one means by which I can enact that. Um, I... I, you know, I, I shudder at the spines of politicians if history teachers and civics teachers started teaching children, children this in our school systems. I, I think that the, 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 the shaking of all of them together might be felt like an earthquake across the country if those words were spoken in sixth grade civics classes. Another reason to nullify Common Core, for example. I mean, that's oh, a whole, yeah. that's a whole yeah. other issue. But Well, there's a success story we don't have in Texas. The, the bailout money from the feds is what forced that into the states, and one of the things that Sleazy Perry did was stick the finger up and go, gee, that's not going to go real well down here, and we just said we don't need your money. I didn't know that Texas was not implementing Common Core. 
No, Texas does not have Common Core. We have something run by the state, which is uh, pretty bad, too, but it's I'm not Common Core, and we do not have the ridiculous math 77 oh, steps. Oh, well, that's very positive. So then I was going to say that Missouri might be the first state to do this. Well, Missouri might be the second. There's been a few states that have passed laws saying that they're going to opt out of Common Core. We just Core. didn't do it. Yeah, well, that's we, good. We didn't, we didn't pass a law that says we're going to opt out. We just didn't do it. And the way that we didn't do it, there was a lot of hooks on that bailout money that people don't know about. And one was to extend unemployment benefits. And it was like a, a mandated that you'll extend the unemployment benefits. And then the federal government gave you the money to extend it for two years. But when their money ran out, the state was stuck with the extensions. Uh-huh. And that was another. So this was all wrapped up in the stimulus bill, in the, in the bailout to the states portion of it. And, and Texas just basically said, you know what? Keep your money, and we're going to run things our way down here. We have a multi-billion-dollar surplus in this state. We don't need you messing it up. Go away. And other governors made a big to-do about it, saying we'll gladly take Texas's money. And then I think the crazy part is, in the end, they gave Texas the money anyway. We just didn't get any strings with it because we said we didn't want it. Wow, that is which is just crazy. I need I need to look into that a little for that. I mean, because I don't know if we got the money or not, but I think we did. I don't think that they refused to give, or maybe they they gave part of the money, but not the part to fund the stuff that we wouldn't do. But I, I do believe that some of the money still came here. Um, and I don't know if I was Perry, you know, I would have a spine and I would have just basically said, oh, you don't want to give us, well, maybe we don't want to give you money either. Well, and that's another, that's, there's a lot of money coming out of this state into the union. So maybe we just won't give you that. A legislator in Georgia a few years ago, and then another one, Matt Shea in, uh, Washington state and Charles Key in Oklahoma, when he was still in office in state government in Oklahoma, they introduced a bill known as the, uh, the state escrow federal tax fund act. And I think it was a little bit ahead of its time, probably very far but it was basically the idea of this whole strings. You introduce a bill on a state level that says, hey, the state is going to interpose against the IRS and, yes, and collect yes, heard of this type of thing. Collect all the tax money uh, from the state for the IRS. Then the, the, we're going to make a determination of what the federal government is doing that is constitutional, and then we'll divvy out to you the percentage of that tax money that uh, is for constitutional purposes and send the rest back to the people in the state. Now, I don't, I mean, maybe at some point that is something that's going to have to be done because if you look at the, the elephant in the room, uh, the 900 pound gorilla is obviously the IRS. They're Correct. unbelievably powerful. I am totally frightened of they them. They do have the manpower to enforce their will everywhere. Yes, they do. They'll do it. Well, the only, the only place that you can actually really have some effect on them, and I think it could be positive, is the state could basically ban, like, county clerks or state chartered banks from enforcing IRS liens, for example. Sure. Uh, so then that would require the IRS to expand, and then you'd have budgetary issues again. I mean, obviously the IRS is as close to a Praetorian Guard as you can get in modern times. They've got a lot of power, a lot of resources, a lot of weapons, and they're scary people. Uh, so at some point, that's going to have to be dealt with. Maybe Key and Shea, and I think it was, I can't think of the guy in Georgia. He passed away. Great, great guy. Uh, but uh, Bobby Franklin was his name. Uh, maybe they were visionaries, and in 10 or 20 years, people will actually start doing this and saying, look, you don't deserve to get our money unless you're doing it for what we've authorized you to do in the first place. So we're going to just start keeping it. I don't know. Uh, no, IRS, I'm not advocating that yet. But 
Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying when I say they have the manpower, they have the manpower to enforce the individual level. Certainly. If you don't pay them and they know you didn't pay them, they will make your life a living hell. Um, where the, the, you know, the DEA does not have the manpower to shut down all the cannabis clinics in Denver. They just don't. Right. They can't do it. And if they did, they would have to take the manpower that they're using for things that are actually somewhat useful and pull off of that to go some, do something that they really know isn't really useful. So they would have to pull agents that are working actual, you know, drug crime, bringing millions of dollars worth of cocaine into the country and all the guns and crime that go with it, and they'd have to pull off of that to go mess with some lady that got a small business loan to open a cannabis clinic. Are you telling me the DEA is investigating Bill Clinton? (laughs) Okay, I couldn't resist that. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? I do know that I did a spoof video talking about banning stairs as an example of banning something if it saves even one life. And throughout the video, I used all these pictures, and I tried to make some points about how oppressed the country is that would actually appeal to people even on the left. And one was I, I pulled this screenshot of the DEA website, and, where, and I had highlighted where they are a tax-collecting entity – uh, of the United States Department of Justice, and that they have a 35 ret- to 1 return on taxpayer monies. So for every dollar they're given by the government, they're able to seize $35 wow. from people, right? And they're actually proud of this. Well, I put that in that video, and I'm not kidding you. Three weeks later, they removed that Burbage from that page. Oh, man. It disappeared. I don't know if it was a coincidence, but I kind of feel like taking some credit yeah, for it. Yeah, just take it. Even if it was a coincidence, <laughs> take credit for that. <laughs> and I have the screenshot. It'll never go away now. It's there. That's incredible. <laughs> so, um, you know, for people that want to get involved and want to start making a difference with this, where should they start? Can they learn more from your organization? And are there are there ways for them to find maybe what's already happening in their state and become part of it? Because I think that's... You know, that's even better. Like, if there's 20 ants already pushing the, the big rock and you need five more to get it to move, then, then bring the ants to where the rock is. Well, there's two things people should do. One, I want them to get more educated. I want everyone to learn as much about this as possible. And if you go to 10thamendmentcenter.com, we post new articles and blogs uh, a couple times a day on various issues. Just kind of just scroll around and read stuff. But if you're motivated, if, if listening to this conversation gives you a feeling of empowerment, go to 10thamendmentcenter.com slash volunteer because this is a grassroots movement. It's a powerful movement. It's one that can actually give us hope, not that Obama-style election campaign hope, but real hope for liberty in the future, whether in our time or in our children or grandchildren's time. Go volunteer. Give an hour a week, two hours a week doing something. If you don't know how to do anything, we'll walk you through it. We'll teach you, spend time with you, make you a powerful activist for liberty. And uh, that's the only way we're going to win. Absolutely, man. And the website, again, folks, is 10th Amendment Center. Dot com And, uh, man, Michael, this has been one of the, the greatest interviews I've ever done, honestly. It's like talking to a, a lifelong friend, honestly, I think, uh, just from the way we view things. So uh, I appreciate you being with us. And if you, uh, if you ever have any particular issues you'd like to uh, discuss deeper in depth, get in touch with us, and we'll get you scheduled and back on the air. Jack, back to you. I really appreciate that. And maybe sometime around December or January we should talk again, because that's when a lot of the state legislators...
legislatures come in session and I can give you guys an update of what bills are being introduced and what people can do to get involved to actually support specific nullification efforts in various states uh, and uh, have some real change happening. Awesome, man. Well, again, thanks for being with us today. Thank you as well. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico along with Michael Bolden today, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.